Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello. How's it going out there? This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. I hope you're doing all right. I have a great episode for you, another flashback episode. It is Friday. I hope you had a good week. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. So the flashback today comes from the Deep Archives, episode 107, all the way back in 2012, a conversation that I had with DT Max who is a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker magazine and the author of several books, including The Family That Couldn't Sleep, A Medical Mystery, another book called Finale, Late Conversations with Stephen Sondheim, and most germane to today's episode, a biography of David Foster Wallace called Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, which published back in 2012. I met DT Max back then. I was living in my old apartment. And he came to my place and we sat down and we talked about David Foster Wallace. And I remember loving the book when I read it and really enjoying the conversation. I have to believe this was the first biography. I think I have that right. The first biography of David Foster Wallace. If it wasn't the first, it was close. So you're going to hear an outtake from that conversation momentarily. A quick reminder to please sign up for my email newsletter. It goes out once a week. I'd love it if you would sign up. You can do so for free at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Likewise, I would love it if you would support this show. This is a listener-supported show. If you love the Other People podcast, you can support it over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get stuff too, a sticker, a coffee mug, that kind of thing over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. So once again, I'm going to be doing a flashback episode today from episode 107, which first aired on September 22nd, 2012, a conversation with author D.T. Max. We were talking about his book entitled Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace, who is obviously the central subject 
of our exchange. So here's a bit from that. If you want to listen to the full episode, you can. It is in the feed, episode 107. So this will be an outtake. If you want to hear the full thing, go get it. All right? All right. So here I am with DT Max. You know, so many things surprised me. I had I had begun the book as a New Yorker uh, piece shortly after David's death in September 2008, and I finished that piece around March. And I thought I learned a lot about David, you know. And it was a long piece; it was 10,000 words, and a lot of people, you know, felt that it really captured David as he was, and especially David as he was in his later years, because a lot of the piece was sort of focused on his inability to finish the Pale King and you know his his decline from there and his suicide. But it turned out, I mean, that I had really, that I knew nothing about David. You know, I knew, for instance, absolutely nothing about his relationship with women, which would turn out to be a very big part of his life. I did not know how long he had worked on The Pale King. I had no idea that he started The Pale King, you know, in 1996 or 1997, shortly after he'd written Infinite Jest. I mean, he may have written pieces of it even earlier, but I know he's working on it shortly after Infinite Jest. I had no idea that Infinite Jest itself had been begun when David was a graduate student. I mean, it shocked me. One of the things I found while working on Every Love Story is a Ghost Story is I found his Yado file for an application that he made in 1986. And, and there it is, Infinite Jest. It says tentative title, Infinite Jest. I had no idea. I mean, it never occurred to me even working on that project so early. I didn't know that he'd gone on Nardal, which is the antidepressant, which both saved his life and sort of tormented him. Uh, when he went on it. I didn't know about his difficult relations with his mother, um, which would include, you know, a difficult period when he's in his early 30s where I I went to the the Ransom Center archives where a lot of David's papers are kept and I found some marginalia, some notes that he'd written in copies of books like um, The Drama of the Gifted Child where he talks about how his mother has sort of put him on a pedestal. I didn't know any of that stuff. You know, on a more kind of broad, broad level, I don't think I realized how hard it was for David to be David. I don't think I realized how perpetually he suffered. I didn't think I realized how how every day he negotiated sort of the, the terms of his life. It just these were just things that were beyond the reach of the original article. Yeah, and and then what about uh, your own particular fandom? You know, were you are you a fan of David Foster Wallace's writing? Was that what brought you to write the original piece or was it something that was assigned to you? Well, I mean, the answer is both. You know, David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, emailed me, which I had been living in Alexandria, Virginia. And I remember that when David died, I must have been in some restaurant or something because I was watching like MSNBC and on the zipper, that little sort of line of printed material that goes around, um, you know, if there's no visual, the story isn't big enough, they put it on the zipper. And the zipper said David Foster Wallace, and that was all I saw. And I thought, oh, goody, David Foster Wallace has finally won an award. You know, he's finally getting the recognition that he deserves. Because I was aware he'd never, you know, David Foster Wallace never won a major or even a minor book award. I mean, it seems bizarre in retrospect, but he never won a Pulitzer, he never won a National Book Award, a National Book Critics Circle Award. I don't actually know if he was even nominated for any of these things when I think about it. Anyway, so I got home and I found out, you know, through the internet what had actually happened, the sad story that he had committed suicide. And, oh, maybe a day or so later, uh, David Remnick emailed me and asked me if I wanted to, you know, to, to write about what had 
what David's last months had been like. And I don't think I had any idea. You know, David was very private. I mean, I now know from the work on the book that part of this privacy was almost kind of obsessional and had to do a lot with not really liking who he was. Well, and there's also like there, there's like an interesting contradiction that he himself uh, articulated, and I'm going to probably mess it up when I paraphrase it, but I think it had something to do with being a, a private exhibitionist. Yeah, yeah, I'm an exhibitionist who wants to hide. Right. But who fails at hiding, therefore I succeed. I think that's <laughs> what it is. I'm doing that from memory. And then the best part is he then cut that line from the interview. It was, it was um, so he didn't, he was... And this exhibitionist is, or not, he still wanted to hide a little bit better than to lay out the roadmap to who he was. Right, and that was the Larry McCaffrey yeah. interview, which is great. The st- yeah, I mean, it's 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 the um, the Rosetta Stone interview for for David. You know, it's where things start. Well, anyway, you know, so I received that email from from David Remnick, and I did want to write about David. And, you know, and the book that I had loved my whole life, uh, David was only were he to be alive, would be one year younger than I am, and so he and I are contemporaries. And when David first published The Broom of the System in 1987, his editor looking for reviews sent me uh, an advanced reading copy, which I devoured. And over the years, I've reread that book every so often. I mean, I think generally when I was just feeling a little bit like I needed just, you know, just a really good, complicated laugh. Um, there's a line in in a letter that David writes to, he writes this letter to his um, 12-step sponsor at one point, recalling his own time when he's uh, when David is in a in the um, halfway house, uh, and how he's worried he's going to start drinking and smoking pot again, and he says that the um, that that his his friend the AA sponsor had written to him and saved him from you know basically failing in his sobriety with what he calls a good MFA caliber trope. Well, room of the system was my good MFA caliber trope. Whenever I needed it. There it was. And so I was shocked in working on the New Yorker piece to find out that David disowned the first book, referring to it as something in a letter to Jonathan Franz, and he says it could have been written by a very smart 14-year-old. I mean, now that I think about it, I don't even know that he says very smart. I think he just says a smart 14-year-old. I think it's a great example of how much David undervalued his work, but it's also, you know, I had, I had been having the wrong sort of orgasm all those years, as, <laughs> as they say in Manhattan. So... You know, one of the incredible pleasures, what I like as a writer, what I've always liked as a writer is to learn. So if you look at my work in The New Yorker and the earlier book that I wrote on fatal familial insomnia, and this book, you know, what they all have in common is learning. I don't like to take on a project where I'm already an expert. So one of the great pleasures of writing the book about David is that I got to read things I had maybe read once not so carefully and really get into them. And one of my tests was, you know, for whether this was the kind of book that I wanted to write, one of the, one of my tests was like, would I be bored with Infinite Jest by the end, you know, when I'd had to read it three times. And, and the You answer, read it three times? Yeah, yeah. And that puts me like I'm a piker compared to some people. I mean, some people three times just to get going on it. I mean, you can read it more and you can get more out of it. For me, it was, you know, the happy answer is it wasn't enough. I mean, I could happily have read it another time. I mean, it's just a completely fascinating a book and a book that I grew more deeply into as I was working on every love story as a ghost story and then the really sort of interesting thing from my point of view is I feel a little bit now like I've passed through Infinite Chest and the book I really want to spend some time with and really get deep into is Brief Interviews with Hideous Men you know the short story collection that follows Infinite Chest and which is some way in some ways is you know the book that 
I mean, David, I think in a letter, a letter I quote in the biography says that it's a book that's mean to practically everybody you can be mean to. But there's a lot in that book that I don't think I really have picked up yet. A lot autobiographically? You oh, mean? no, 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 no. This isn't professional reading. No, God, no. I mean, I think I think I've mined that baby fine. No. no, no. I mean, a lot, a lot about who David was as a creative person, a lot about where he was carrying his project as a fiction writer. I mean, the things that really, really matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then what about... Well, his... Which, by the way, puts me on course for oblivion, you know, when I'm sort of in the old age home. <laughs> <laughs> so, or, or everything and more. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And, and what about, uh, you know, assessing David, uh, David's intelligence? Because this is something, like, I, I think I'm decidedly average by comparison. I think a lot of people, when they pick up David Foster Wallace's books or they read them in interviews, uh, it becomes pretty clear that he's operating uh, at a pretty high level intellectually. But at the same time, I think that there is a possibility that that intelligence could be fetishized and uh, maybe overstated or, or held up as some sort of, um, I don't know, uh, ideal or, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, did yeah, you, of course. How do, mean, you, how, do you, how do you think of that, having written this book? Like, how do you look at it? Well, I mean, I think the question can even be made more complicated, which is, um, you know, is intelligence the most important ingredient when you're writing a novel? And I can adduce on sort of on the contrary side, no less an authority than Brett Easton Ellis, who has recently become well-known for sort of tweets saying that David Foster Wallace has the most overblown reputation since, I don't know. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, because... since the most overblown reputation since, I don't know, Austin Dobson. I don't really know who to say for the, the, <laughs> the other, other side of that end, but Joyce Kilmer. Anyway, but what, what Brett said earlier, shortly after David died, which I find kind of more intriguing, is he said, you know, I never really read David... Wallace with any pleasure. It's possible that he was just too smart to write novels. I find that a more interesting question. You know, there's a there's a part of novel writing is pretty humdrum. I mean, part of novel writing is the orchestration of characters and the movement of these characters, even in a fairly non-standard book like Infinite Jest, you know, the movement of these characters around a kind of a chessboard. And that's really not, I think, the work of a genius. You know, the chess is a work of a genius, or at least a certain kind of genius. I think that, you know, part of what's so interesting about David is in my heart, what I believe is that David had the wrong kind of intelligence to be a novel writer, but he succeeded as a novel writer anyway, 
because he had so much intelligence, because he was so massively... I mean, I, I think the stories about how smart David was are true. Uh, I mean, you know, it's a little bit... I mean, the, the thing about intelligence is it's... There are, there are, as we all know now, different kinds of intelligences. But in that certain kind of, you know, historic white lab coat slide rule, faster at, faster at the dinner table with the answer, off to the best colleges, graduate work done in fewer hours than other people take to do their graduate work so that, you know, said individual is already sitting at the bar while the rest of us are still sweating away. There, David really was off, off the charts. I mean, everything I learned for every love story is a ghost story really confirmed that, you know, well, one, that he was insanely intelligent, and two, that he really worked to be a great student. Well, see, that was part of it that surprised yeah. me, because I, I knew, having read him, that he was obviously a huge Yeah, yeah, a I can see mind. in saying that I may have stumbled off of the straight and narrow, but I, to me, it's not, it's not really inconsistent. I mean, he had focus, partially because I think because of his, his mental difficulties, I don't think anything else felt quite so alive to David as, as study. Here, we're mostly talking about his years as a undergraduate at Amherst and to a lesser extent a graduate student at, at Arizona. But you know what I what I feel is that you see this intelligence that was really probably better designed for other things. And especially during his years at Amherst. He goes to Amherst, he's lonely, he has two breakdowns in short order, becomes a fiction writer, publishes a really, really precocious first story called The Planet Trilophon while still at school. And in the last, you know, three, four, five months of his of his um, time at Amherst, he writes The Broom of the System, this, you know, five, six hundred page comic work, which, you know, to which I owe much of the much of my reading pleasure in my 20s and 30s. But what I was going to say is, you know, I, I think that where David's fiction is strongest and weakest is sort of still along the seams of that original somewhat technical intelligence. And for instance, if you I mean, I, I believe one reason that David, through much of his time, had trouble with issues like plagiarism most famously when he's working on the story collection Girl with Curious Hair and the one of the stories, the David Letterman story called My Appearance is about to go to press uh, in magazine form at Playboy and one of the editors is watching TV and to his amazement discovers that much of the dialogue in um, My Appearance, which was actually not, it was called Late Night with Letterman I think when it was at Playboy. Anyway, uh, much of the dialogue was lifted from an actual interview that Susan St. James, the actress, had given to Letterman. Well, I mean, how could a person of David's creativity and imagination have, have done this? And I think one of the answers is, you know, David was creative without being enormously inventive. And I think that's one of the sort of aspects of his intelligence that I think bears a, a close examination. You know, in a lot of ways, one of my favorite quotes from the book is the student who is, I think, in one of David's Amherst classes. He teaches briefly at Amherst after he graduates. I think it's Amherst where this takes place. Or maybe it's his first years as a teacher at Illinois State University. And one young woman described the way that they studied fiction together as being like reverse engineering the stories. And I've always thought, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. David in those sort of unhappy months at home, once he was on leave from Amherst, I, I think he probably sat there and I think he, you know, there's a famous story that I guess Joan Didion tells about herself that she learned to write by typing out Hemingway's stories. Do you know that story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've actually heard of that from, I mean, Hunter Thompson, I want to say, did that with F. Scott yes, Fitzgerald. Right, and and... Exactly. Those are the two, the two examples that I knew of as well. 
you know, I think David was just so much brighter than Joan Didion that he didn't have to sit there and type them out. I think it was enough for him to kind of read them over and over with that amazing, isolating, analytic, building blocks kind of mind that he was able to, you know, figure out in Room of the System, a novel that was in some ways a lot like everybody else's novels of that genre, most notably Thomas Pynchon, but actually isn't a Pynchon novel. I'm, you know, the, the great sort of rap on on the Room of the System is it's Pynchonian, and if you look at the reviews that, that accompanied that book, and you have to remember we're in 1987 when memories of the 70s are really strong, so that there's a whole generation of critics who, ha who are missing you know, they're missing what once was, which was the era of John Barth and Bartholomew and Pynchon. And they all call it Pynchonian. I've always thought they were wrong because, I mean, one of the things that I find so noteworthy about Pynchon, you know, is there's not an ounce of emotion in those books that I can find. And yet, actually, Lenore Beadsman, the protagonist of The Broom of the System, I find a very emotionally complete woman. And my suspicion, though I certainly don't attempt to prove it in every love story is a ghost story. My suspicion is that David must have copied in his, into his brain portraits of emotionally memorable female characters and then written one. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, and just the fact that he went with a female protagonist in his first book and, I mean, like that choice, I don't know, it's almost, maybe he was just trying to give himself a bigger challenge. It seems like the kind of thing he might have done. You know? Yeah, although he remembers at the very beginning of his writing career. I mean, there is no writing before that, really. So a bigger challenge than what is the question? Yeah, I mean, or just to try to write outside. I mean, who knows? You know, I'm just thinking that it must have been, uh, it seemed like kind of a game to him. Uh, not that, not to reduce yeah, it. Yeah, for but, sure. You know. But well, this he, is, I mean, the whole premise is a game-like premise. Right, right. So, um, and let's talk, I guess, in like kind of a related way about uh, competition. And, and then this sort of relates not only to his achievements as a student, but I think it also relates to what we were talking about earlier with regard to Bretty's Thanalis. Um, which kind of brought it back into my mind when I watched these guys, you know, I, I watched Brett making all these comments on his Twitter feed about, you know, Wallace and people who like Wallace. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of like uh, brute criticisms and some things, um, you know, that personally. Well, we, we should we should mention that for whatever reason, he actually liked the biography. Yeah, we should. <laughs> we should. Yeah. He said it was an elegantly written. And, uh, and, and he said compassionate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But there was also like anyway, a... Anyway, back to the big point. Yeah. Well, but no, but there was a line, you know, just to sort of turn this on me a little bit, uh, where he said that there's a whole generation of readers who read David Wallace and uh, congratulate themselves for feeling smart or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And when I read that, I sort of winced because I, I, I think if I'm being totally sodium pentothal honest, there yeah. have been moments where you read Wallace and you can you do feel better about yourself or like you learn something, which I don't think is necessarily a terrible thing, but I don't know. It's, it seemed to hit at some degree of truth with regard to like the general adoration out there. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just trying to play fair. I think it goes so much deeper, though. You know, what I loved about Brett's comments is that it really replicates a war that went on within Wallace himself, which was the battle between irony you know, in sincerity. So, right. You know, Brett is kind of like the, the, who I think enjoys this role is almost like the devil standing on David Foster Wallace's shoulder in 1988 or 89. Like you can, <laughs> you can, you can, you can still do all these things. You know, you can, first of all, you can, you can still do harmful substances, but meta, but metaphorically, you can still be, a, you, you can still use irony to cleanse. You know, I mean, I think Brett's, I haven't talked to him about this, but I would think his argument would be that, the ironic stance of his novels is more cleansing and sincere and cuts away you know, the garbage and the bullshit in our world 
in a way that David's, you know, Dudley Do-Right stance, you know, fails to do. That David David's stance really covers over insincerities under the sort of, you know, under the rubric of identification, you know, the whole 12-step idea that you identify. Okay, there we have it. My conversation with D.T. Max in episode 107. D.T. Max is the author of Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, a Life of David Foster Wallace. Episode 107 aired on September 22nd, 2012. You can listen to our full conversation wherever you get your podcasts. It's in the feed. Look for episode 107 and hear me talk to D.T. Max. You can find D.T. Max on the internet. Read his stuff at the New Yorker magazine. You can also follow him on Twitter at D.T. Max. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen. Follow The Other People Podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep it going. If you would like to get another People t-shirt or a sweatshirt, there are different colors, sizes, cuts, men's, women's, children's. Just go to otherppl.com, scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. Click on it. If you have a couple of minutes, I would appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen. Write a review if that's an option. It helps the show find new listeners. You can watch the Other People podcast on YouTube. You can't watch the flashback episodes because I wasn't recording video back then. But you can watch the new episodes. If you have feedback for me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, a plug for my latest novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so read my book if you want to. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Okay, so that's it for today. Coming up on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Andrew Lipstein. He has a new novel out called The Vegan, which is pretty incredible. I had a good talk with him, and it's happening soon. So stay tuned.